Hello, listeners. This is Hillary Trudell, and you're listening to The Yarn Podcast. At The Yarn, we use the power of story to amplify voices, build understanding, and create space for human connection. We currently operate out of Little Rock, Arkansas, and all of the stories you're about to hear were performed live from South on Main in beautiful, historic downtown Little Rock. Our shows are theme-based and center on topics that come straight from our community. This is the first of a special Halloween two-part series jam-packed with true scary stories told straight from the mouths of yarn storytellers. So get ready to scare your truth for our special Halloween podcast. Let's dive in. Our first storyteller is a native of New Orleans who brings a tale straight from the Big Easy. He's never seen a ghost, but his story will scare you silly. Here's Andy Vaughn from the Yard Stage. So I want to tell you a haunted house story. And the address of this haunted house is 919 Royal Street in New Orleans, Louisiana. So it's a haunted house story in a city that is literally full of haunted house stories. And it's a pretty creepy one. So in the 1700s, the scariest thing in New Orleans was the yellow fever. And it was scary for a couple of reasons. First, when you got it, your skin turned yellow, your eyes went in like this, you were shaking, you had fever, and you were puking everywhere. So you were really scary. But also, It was transmitted by mosquitoes. And if there's one thing New Orleans has, it's mosquitoes. And so every summer, thousands of people are dying, and they estimate that 41,000 people died over 100 years because of the yellow fever. So a real bad consequence of this plague is that there's all these orphans running through the city now. And so the city is scrambling, trying to get homes for these orphans. So in 1792, they build an orphanage at 919 Royal Street. Two years later, it burns down. Of the 40 kids inside, only five did not get out. So five kids didn't make it. After a couple of years, it was a a dormant lot. And then a federal judge bought it. And the judge wanted to build a mansion on it because this mansion was going to be for his brand new bride who was coming all the way from Iowa. And he wanted it to be the best mansion it could be. He wanted it to have 15-foot story ceilings, 15-foot tall ceilings, and big French windows. And he wanted his wife to feel at home. And so he built a corn stalk fence. So when she looked out of her window, she wouldn't be homesick. So she moves in. have a wonderful life for a couple months. But then she starts to hear things. And at first she can't make it out. But after a couple of months, she swears it sounds like children laughing. And she thinks she hears steps running up and down the halls. And she swears she hears nursery rhymes being sung in the garden. The voices get louder. And she starts to get sick. Her skin turns yellow. Her eyes crag in, she shakes. Her husband's afraid she has yellow fever. So he takes her to the doctor. The doctor says there's nothing wrong with her, it's all in her mind. 
So they come home. The wife says, I'm going to go take a bath. The husband, he takes care of the downstairs business. And he walks upstairs because it's been a couple of hours and he hasn't heard from his wife. He goes to the bathroom. There's no one in there. There's no water in the tub. He goes to their bedroom and he opens the door. And he sees his wife hanging from the chandelier at the top of their 15-foot tall ceiling. He's heartbroken. He flees New Orleans. He's never a judge again. He goes to Iowa to grieve. A few years later, the house becomes a hotel, the Andrew Jackson Hotel, and it's still there today with the cornstalk fence. And guests would come, and they'd report hearing things. They'd say, we heard footsteps last night, or we heard laughter, or we heard singing. One guest swears that they walked out of their bathroom and found their bed covered in toys. After a while, people around the country start hearing about this house. And they say, oh man, I want to go. I want to go have a haunted vacation. And so they come to try and get scared. Well, one day in 1982, a couple from Iowa had that idea. And they took a three-day weekend, and they went down to New Orleans, and they knew all about the stories, and they were so excited to be scared. So the first day they got there, they walked around the French Quarter, they went down Bourbon Street, they got drunk, they had a great day. They get back to the hotel, first night, nothing happens. Second night, they go on a swamp tour, they see alligators, they ride around in a big airboat. Second night, nothing happens. Third night, they go to a fancy meal, hit the town a little bit, come back to their room. Third night, nothing happens. So they leave a little disappointed. So they get back to Iowa, and just like us today, they were taking pictures of everything that they did. But this is 1982, so they did not have immediate access to those pictures. And that's a horror story for another time. <laughs> so they took their photos to Walgreens, and they got it developed. And a day later, they picked it up, and they brought it back to their house. And they're looking at their pictures, and they're reminiscing about what a great trip they had. And just when the wife is saying, boy, I'm a little disappointed we weren't scared, they find a picture at the end of the roll. And it's a picture of the husband and wife in their hotel room, asleep. <laughs> They're furious. Who broke into our room and took this picture? They call the manager of the hotel. They say, we are furious. Who, called, who took this picture? And he says, uh, that's crazy. No one would do that. And they're like, well, we have the picture. And he says, okay, okay, why don't you send it to me, and I'll look at it, and I'll tell you if I can help in any way. And so, this being 1982, they had to make a copy of the picture. They had to put it in the mail. Fifteen weeks later, it gets to New Orleans. The manager's looking at it, and there's something weird about the picture because it is the couple asleep, but it's not just them asleep. It's them asleep from above. The manager calls his most trusted bellhop. He says, bellhop, what is going on here? And they go to the room to look, and they realize that the couple stayed in the wife's room. And as the bellhop looked up at the ceiling, he said, the only way anyone took that picture is if they were hanging from the chandelier. 
Thank you, Pete. Our next storyteller, James Rector, has always been fascinated by urban legends, which can be defined as modern stories of obscure origin with little or no supporting evidence that spread spontaneously. James shares his personal experience with one such myth from the art stage. <clears throat> I'm going to let Pete sit here for a front seat and stand because I might get a little animated with my story. So, growing up in a small town in Oklahoma, there were bound to be a few urban legends in the area. And uh, also being a teenager bored on a Friday night, we were bound to get in trouble somehow. My story is about an urban legend about the Labadee Mansion. Labadee spelled L-A-B-A-D-I-E, for those of you competing in a spelling bee. Uh, for the longest time, I thought it was Laverty with a V, but I was wrong. So, the Labadee Mansion, uh, this was a well-to-do family. Uh, they had a huge ranch with uh, sprawling acres of, of land uh, right on the edge of Osage County in northeast uh, Oklahoma. So, this family grew up around the early 1900s. And uh, the urban legend that kind of sprawled from this had several different, uh, several different stories that came from it. Uh, one of those stories included uh, Mr. Laberty, um, his name was Frank Laberty, uh, going crazy on one April Fool's Day in 1935. Uh, it may have been due to the fact that the farm was failing and he had lots of children. But what he did is he gathered all of his children, children up in the attic and then started throwing them out the window. Little Georgie was first, then came John, then Paul, then Ringo. No, there was no Ringo. <laughs> but just at this time, and I know you're asking, well, where was Mrs. Laberty during all of this? Well, she was down in the parlor doing her cross stitch, staring out the window, when she sees her youngest fall from the sky and splat. Then she hears the screams coming from the attic, so she bolts up the stairs, bursts open the door, just in time to see her only daughter, Layla, being chucked out the window. Well, she didn't have any time to do anything because Mr. Labadee grabbed her, and as she was screaming, he threw her out the window. And then he realized what he had done, and he knew that there was consequences with it. So he took a deadbolt, ran straight out the window to join his departed family below. Another version of the story involves no children. In fact, Frank and Samantha could not have kids. But there was one other character involved, uh, Enos Parsons. He was a, uh, a slave that hadn't moved on past the Civil War, and, and, and he still worked on the farm for Mr. Laverty. Well, that December, Enos and Samantha had an affair. And by the spring, she was showing. And Frank, he was excited. He was like, oh my gosh, we're going to have a kid, finally. I get to have a kid. Well, guess what? When that kid was born, it clearly did not look like Frank. He was furious. Enos finally admitted to the fact that he had an affair. So in a fit of rage, he, grew, he grabbed his 44 Henry rifle, shot around into Enos, threw him in the creek, and the legend goes that he sunk to the bottom and was never seen again. 
He went back to the house, pointed a finger at Samantha, and said, that baby has the same fate. Well, guess what? Several years later, April Fool's Day, 1935, who's crazy again? He claims that Enos and the baby were haunting him. So in another fit of rage, he grabs the pistol from the house, fires four shots into Samantha, one shot in his head. The officials couldn't find the sixth bullet. They also couldn't find that 44 Henry rifle. So it's rumored to this day that the Labadees haunt that mansion and they'll chase anybody out. And as you're leaving the property, you'll see the fireplace ablaze. And then as you're traveling through the woods, you'll run into Enos, who's carrying that shotgun. From time to time, you'll hear a shot, and you'll see birds circling above from where that shot happened. In a third version of the story, they had kids again. But one of those kids was deformed. So they locked him in the attic. Because in the early 1900s, it wasn't couth to have a deformed child. Mrs. Labadee wore a necklace with the key to the attic. She would go up and she would feed the child. Several years later, guess what day? April Fool's Day, 1935. She goes up and she's, she's taking the tray of food from his dinner. The, the young child is now a young man. And he overtook her and he grabbed her and he choked her by that necklace. That necklace that was not only his captivity, was ironically his freedom. And you see, they also didn't keep him, so he had really long nails. He crept down from the attic to the dinner table where the family was still eating, and he slashed them up, ran out into the woods, and he watched the house ever since. And those who had went looking for what they called the cat man have claims of stories of claw marks on their back. But I tell you all of this to tell you my personal experience with the Labadee House. It was on a fall day when I was in high school. My friend Kendra and Steven and I were over at my friend Sam's house, sitting in the living room, talking about anything and everything. What are you going to be for Halloween? Should we go cruise the Strip? Should we go hang out at the gas station? Yes, that's a thing in small rural towns. <laughs> but somebody had suddenly mentioned the Labadee Mansion and the urban about, myth about that. And I just jokingly was like, well, let's go find the place. The trouble was none of us really knew where it was. I know where it is. Some voice came from the kitchen. Just then, Sam's older sister peeked her head around. I know where that is. I can totally tell you where that is. Here, let me write it down. Writes it down, we check it on the map. Remember, this was the 90s, we didn't have GPS, so we had to look this up. So we all packed into my friend Sam's Jeep Cherokee. Sam was in the driver's seat, Stephen was sitting shotgun, Kendra and I were in the back, and we headed north. We had to drive for quite a while because we had to go over a dam, we had to go past a lake, we had to go on a twist and turns of an old highway, turning down a gravel road, where we drove back and forth for quite a while because we couldn't find the driveway. We eventually found it, a very small, narrow road, the type of road where if, you, if another car was coming while you were going up, you would have to back out. It was also narrow because it was surrounded by the woods, the woods that created this canopy over it. So it was almost like driving down a wooded cavern. So we drove, turned on the road, drove down it, 
It was about a mile long. And then all of a sudden, Sam goes, hey, there's a gate. He, stop, he brings the car to a stop. We sit there for a minute. Stephen jokes, yeah, no, there's really not much area to return around here now, is there? Shuts off the car. We step out into the cold night air. I love fall because it smells like leaves and campfire. It has a little bit of a crisp breeze that hits you just right and chills your bone. You can see your breath. That's what that night was like. It was also a waning moon, so it was a little bit dark outside. Before I knew it, Sam and Steven had jumped over the fence and yelled back, hey, you guys, take a look out. You know, just stay here. Just keep, keep a lookout. Because there's another part of the myth that, or urban legend that goes, a caretaker watches the land and has a shotgun and kind of likes to shoot at, path, uh, at people that are trespassing. Could that be Enos? We don't know. So, Kendra and I were standing there alone, leaned up against the back of the Jeep Cherokee. We were looking out into the woods down the dark uh, driveway. And uh, we were staring long enough, I started seeing a figure move. I thought maybe, yeah, it's a deer. It's, it's fine. But no, it, it looked like it was definitely on two legs. And the only thing that really broke my concentration from watching that figure move back and forth in the woods was Kendra tapped me on the shoulder, goes, hey, do you see those lights down there? I looked. It's like, yeah, they look kind of like fireflies, you know? And she's like, dumbass, it's October. There's no fireflies. <laughs> those little tiny lights started to form bigger and bigger, and, and they formed the shape of a flashlight, several flashlights that were moving towards us <laughs> down the drive. In fact, we could actually hear faint footsteps. So we were a little freaked out, so we decided mutually to get back in the Jeep. But as we turned around to get back in the Jeep, my friends Sam and Steven come bolting back over the fence going, get in, get in, get in! We jump into the car. Sam's fumbling around with his keys. He drops them into the floorboard, tries to pick them back up, sticks the key into the ignition. We all looked at each other. Tries again. Come on, Sam. Really? Are you? Quit joking around. Just start the Jeep and let's get out of here. I'm not joking around. I can't really start my car. Well, try it one more time. The car comes to life. And he throws it into reverse because there really was nowhere to turn around. So we're backing up, going in reverse. The lights behind us are getting closer, coming up the driveway. We're backing up, lights getting closer, backing up, lights getting closer. All of a sudden, Kendra yells, stop! He slams on the brakes, kicks up the dust. After that cloud of dust clears, we don't see any flashlights. Where did they go? Kendra and I were searching, looking, and then all of a sudden, Stephen goes, hey, do you see those flashlights? And I was like, no, we don't see flashlights, we're looking. He says, no, they're in front of the car. Well, we were about halfway down the drive at this point, and we could see way down by the gate, flashlights. But instead of a casual walk, they were running towards the car. Well, Sam goes, F this, <laughs> like, puts it in reverse and starts backing up. But as we keep going back, they're coming faster. He's going back, they're coming faster, we're going back, coming faster. All of a sudden, we hit that gravel road and spin the car around, and he gets out of there. We don't look back. We don't even speak the rest of the car ride. 
In fact, it may have been longer driving home than it was driving there. Once we got back to Sam's house, we each got out of our cars, went our separate ways. I drove home that evening. I lived out in the country, and my driveway, too, was rather long, not a mile long, but it's pretty long. I get to my house, turn off the car, go in. My parents both work nights, so I was used to being alone. I go into my house, go to close the curtains in the living room. As I'm drawing them closed, draw the last one closed, look down my driveway. What do you think I saw? Emily Wernsdorfer is a native of Pennsylvania and moved to Arkansas 10 years ago. She is the program director at Ferncliff Camp and Conference Center and loves the great outdoors. Halloween is her favorite holiday, even though she gets scared of literally anything that is spooky. Here's Emily from the Art Stage. Thank you. So I have always been a camp person. I never understood those kids that got homesick at camp because I thought it was the greatest place on earth. I didn't want to be anywhere but camp. And I remember being as young as eight and spending one or more weeks at my summer camp in South Central Pennsylvania every summer. It was called Camp Echo Trail. It was a Girl Scout camp. And one thing I love about camp is the, the culture of storytelling, um, that every camp has these legends or tales or origin stories or songs that are specific to that camp and are passed on from camper to camper or staff to staff. Um, and Camp Echo Trail was no different. They had a lot of legends, a lot of myths, um, and it was so cool to be part of that and to, to hear that and, and be part of it for my week of the summer. Sometimes these stories are scary, sometimes they're silly, sometimes they're specific to a location, sometimes they're a regional variant, um, but it's such a cool thing about all camps. And so Camp Echo Trail had one in particular that I heard for the first time when I was, I think, 12 years old as a camper. I was in a group of, of girls and um, our counselors were probably pretty tired of us because they let us stay up late, build a fire by ourselves, and hang out for a couple hours after lights out. Uh, they went back to their cabins, they were eager for some alone time, I think, and left the group of 12-year-old girls alone with a fire. <laughs> and one night, there was a girl in my group, and she said, you guys know that story about cricket bones, don't you? And I did not know this story, and like any 12-year-old who doesn't know this story, I said, of course I do, <laughs> but I have forgotten some of it, and if you would like to tell it, you can, it's fine. And so this was the story of Cricket Bones, as I remember her telling it that night. Long, long ago, before Camp Echo Trail was a camp, there was a man who lived on the edge of the forest on a farm. He was recently married to a beautiful and mysterious woman, not from their town. No one knew much about her, but she was beautiful and perfect, a dream wife. But she did have one weird quirk. Every night, she would rise from the bed after her husband had fallen asleep, whisper to him, darling, I need to go outside for some fresh air. Turn on some music on the gramophone, go outside for some fresh air, and return. 
Now, the man was a hardworking farmer. He was tired. He was half awake when his wife left every night. He wasn't really comprehending what was happening. And so one day, he casually mentioned this to some of his friends in town, that his wife liked to step out every night for some fresh air. And his friend said, buddy, are you kidding me? She has a fella. They are going dancing. She is running around on you. There is no way she is going outside for some fresh air in the middle of the night. Are you kidding? The man was a little suspicious at this point. And so that night, he pretended to fall asleep. He laid in bed. His wife rose as she always did, gave him a caress as she left and said, darling, I'm going out for some fresh air put some music on the gramophone, went outside. The man waited a moment, and then he followed her. But there was no sign of her anywhere. Not on the porch, not in the yard, not out in the barn. And then he checked the wood house. He opened the door and screamed, for he thought he saw his wife hanging in the wood house. But it was not his wife. It was his wife's skin, peeled off in one grotesque piece as if she had taken it off like a suit and hung it from the rafters. He shrieked, he ran, he turned, threw his lantern at the wood house, it set it ablaze, he grabbed his horse, he rode into town. He knocked on all of his friends' doors, he said, help me, help me, I think my wife is a demon. They calmed him down, he spent a few nights in town, as you would. And then he rode back to his farm. All was still. There was no sign of his wife or her skin. The wood house was just a smoldering heap of ash at this point. The man thought, I must be, I must be crazy. I don't know what I saw, but it couldn't have been what I saw. So he put his horse up. And as he closed the barn door, he suddenly found himself in a tight grip. He struggled. He turned and saw that he was in the grip of his wife, or what would have been his wife had she not been just bones and ligaments. When she moved, those bones and ligaments creaked and squeaked like crickets, so he didn't hear her sneaking up behind him. She screamed, you fool, you have doomed me to this bony form forever. And he screamed, and it was the last noise anyone ever heard from him. He was never found. The only noise you can hear out at the farm these days is crickets. And so this, this tale was told to me as a 12-year-old. Obviously terrifying. <laughs> at the time, I didn't think of all the plot holes, um, <laughs> the leaps of logic here and there. Um, but at the time, absolutely terrifying to me. Now, it didn't hinder my love of camp, and I came back to camp later that summer, I think, and even and years past that. But I never forgot about this legend. Um, and, and one year, I was a counselor in training, or a CIT. Uh, basically, CITs spend a couple weeks at camp, and they learn how to be a good counselor, so they could be a counselor in the future. Um, and at my camp, at Camp Echo Trail, it was a lot of um, grunt work and stuff that counselors didn't want to do themselves. So uh, one night, another CIT and I were tasked with setting up the dining hall because we were going to um, have sort of a prank day the next day and we wanted it to be decorated for breakfast and when campers would arrive, we'd be like, oh, who did this? Oh. It was us, it was the CITs. And so the two of us stayed up past our evening campfire. We decorated the dining hall and we started walking back to our cabins. At this point, 
we're probably an hour, an hour and a half after lights out. We're walking through the woods with a flashlight each. It's very dark, and there are no lodging units near to where we are. We are walking back to ours. There's several on the site, but they're not really in the area. So we feel very alone. I start thinking about cricket bones, and I hear a stick snap behind me. I whip around, nothing is there. And so as a 16-year-old, I tried to uh, exude some confidence, uh, some casual conversation that I was really not feeling. And I said to my companion, hey, you know that story about cricket bones? And at that moment, at that exact moment, I heard old-timey big band jazz music, the kind of thing you would hear from a gramophone. I froze. My friend froze. She said, do you hear that music? And we both took off running in a dead sprint back to our cabin. We didn't tell anyone about the incident, but it has always stuck with me. Like I said, as a 12-year-old, I, I was terrified of that story of cricket bones. As an adult, I might be a bit more rational, but I can, to this day, I cannot imagine a logical explanation for where that music would have been coming from. Um, I've carried my love of camp from childhood to adulthood. Um, I'm a director at a camp called Ferncliff, and I love it. It's great. Yep, thanks. Whoop. Uh, and I love everything about my job. It's so fun. Um, it's awesome that I get to be in a camp environment year-round and spend every summer at a summer camp. But there is one thing I don't love about my job, um, and that's those nights when it's been hectic. So after our evening worship, I go back to my office, and I spend a couple of hours working uninterrupted so I can get some things done for the next day. And I emerge from my office. It's dark. Campers have been in their cabins for hours. I have to walk back to my cabin, pitch black, and all I can hear around me are crickets. <laughs> Thanks. That's our show for tonight. Thanks for listening. I'm your host, Hilary Trudell, and this is The Yarn Podcast. The Yarn Podcast is a production of the Big Rock Switchboard Network. Big Rock is produced by Whit Berenger, and this show was edited by Omaya Jones. You can find out more about The Yarn at www.theyarnstorytelling.com. And you can follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Lastly, we would love to hear from you. You are our community, and we want to make sure we represent what matters to you on our stage. Scary or not, we put true stories on the stage. Send us your suggestion for upcoming shows and comments about our podcast to info at theyarnstorytelling.com. And remember, we believe in the power of story. Everyone's got a story. What's yours? I'm your host, Hilary Trudell, and we'll see you next time.
All right, so let's get scared. Who believes in ghosts? Just let me hear it. Clap your hands. Every time you clap your hands, Pete doesn't get bad. So that's good. Um, I don't really know if I do, honestly. I mean, I've heard all the stories that are going to be told tonight, which are really scary, but I don't know if I'm a ghost person. I am really afraid of sharks, though. Um, I blame my dad, which is, you know, we all blame our dad for something. I blame him for my shark thing. When I was like seven, which was appropriate to show your child Jaws at seven, I would say, because that was cool of him. And it like, you know, it's terrifying. Jaws is probably the best movie ever made and it's terrifying. I will never not be afraid of sharks. But to make matters worse, I had one of those beds that you kind of have to jump into, like, you know, I was little, I was seven, so I had to jump into it. And my dad thought it would be cool to hide under it after he showed me Jaws and grabbed my ankle. And that was, um, I did not ask him permission to tell a story. So, sorry, Dad. 